Ian S. McNiven's authorized biography of Lawrence Durrell was a New York Times notable book for 1998. McNiven has edited two collections of Durrell's correspondence with Richard Aldington and with Henry Miller, is the author of numerous articles on literary modernism, and has directed and spoken at conferences on three continents. He's also a past president of the International Lawrence Durrell Society and of the D.H. Lawrence Society of North America. McNiven resides on the west bank of the Hudson, outside the town of Athens, New York, and we're here to talk about his biography of James Lachlan, the founder and publisher of New Directions. The name of the book is Literature is My Beat. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's uh, start at the beginning. He, uh, Lachlan, was the son of steel. Was he born with a silver spoon in his mouth? You'd be better off to say a platinum spoon, because by the time he was born in 1914, three generations of Lachlans had come before him, and the first James Lachlan in America, who was his great-grandfather, had been a bank president and then got into making steel for a reason that his great-grandson would have appreciated, because a son of this first Lachlan had decided that he was going to go to Paris and become an artist. And for a Scottish-Irish-American entrepreneur, this was about the worst thing his son could have said to him. So he said, I'll buy into the steel industry and get this painter nonsense out of their heads. And so he joined with a Welshman named Jones and founded the Jones and Lachlan Steel Corporation. Okay. At least eventually it came to be called that. And that was in Pittsburgh. That's in Pittsburgh. And of course you can't get more connected to steel than Pittsburgh. Was there any kind of connection between, or, or the, is the timing off with uh, Andrew Carnegie? No, they were contemporaries. In fact, they, they intermarried with the, with the Carnegies. And by, by 1900, Lachlan was the number two steel producer in the United States. Okay. Carnegie was number one. Right, by and a long were, way? By a substantial amount. Yeah. What really put the Lachlans on the map, they, it was the 1850s when they started, was the Civil War. How were men and machinery transported down toward the battlefronts in those days mm. by rail? Yeah. And Lachlans were making iron rails. They weren't making steel rails yet. Making iron rails, and they made many, many miles of them. And by the end of the Civil War, uh, the family, which was already wealthy, was very wealthy. It's interesting, isn't it, how war really helps the rich, or particularly the rich that happen to be in any kind of manufacturing. Well, if we can jump ahead, just in one thing, this was, of course, one of the things that our Lachlan, Lachlan, the publisher, took his calling partly from the exhortations of the American poet Ezra Pound, and Ezra Pound went around telling the whole world that wars were caused by bankers and industrialists. By Lachlan's uh, ancestors. 
And so the, the young James, our man, thought that he had a, a calling to make some compensation for the evils of his family. Yeah, there was a level of guilt, you think? There was a level of guilt. Yeah, and, and so by, by choosing to get into literature, what, he wanted to elevate the level of American culture and, and thereby the level of, uh, what, uh, dialogue and conversation in the nation to, to help elevate politics, or was it that grand? It became that grand. I, I think it started out simply because he admired poets and writers generally. Why? I Why? Wonder. Simply be well. He, he, first of all, he went to a, a school called Choate in Connecticut, and he was very lucky in his teachers there. One of them was a man named Dudley Fitz, who would have quite a good reputation in in editing and in writing, and. Fitz taught on the honors book course, and he got Lachlan to read people who were not being offered in any universities and probably in no private schools at the time, other private schools. Mm. He read Ezra Pound, he read Gertrude Stein, people in that order, and these were either totally unknown yeah. or were simply not uh, considered things that the young should be taught. That, by the way, included his parents because there was a huge blow-up when he came back and he showed around a poem by a, a strange fellow named T.S. Eliot. And his, his brother said, I didn't realize that my own blood would be reading trash like that. And his mother wept over him and started praying. <laughs> And they decided they'd send him to a military school. To he was bound able to, this out of him, so to speak. Exactly. But he was able to avoid that. So there was a definite prejudice against modern, what we now think of as modernist literature. That's extraordinary that this teacher would have his finger on the, the pulse of... Uh, mm. the, I mean, it's not. it wasn't known as modernism then. It was just some That's new right. guys that That's were... Right shaking things up, and, and most people hated them. Well, Fitz, Dudley Fitz was already in correspondence with Ezra Pound. Pound was in correspondence with everyone. Everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Lachlan would write, in his prime, uh, 17 letters a day. I call him Jay because that's the way he preferred to be known. Yeah. And it's not J-A-Y, it's, it's, uh, it's capital J with no period, just like that. Okay. He adopted this practice from Pound, or it just it came naturally that he that he was this kind of this communicative. I think that what happened to him is that Choate worked for him. His earlier schooling had been kind of haphazard, and it had included a year in a Swiss school, Le Rossi, uh, in the town of Rolle on, on Lake Geneva, and it was the most expensive school in Switzerland which, of course, was no big deal to the, to the Lachlans. And one of his classmates was, was the future Shah of Iran. So uh, he was in bad company, so to speak, mm -hmm. but also very rich company. And he came up out of that experience, that year's experience, with, with pretty good knowledge of French. 
if a schoolboy French, but it would serve him for the rest of his, his life, at least as a foundation for further studies. Mm-hmm. He was a good student, um, not in everything, but he was a good student when he wanted to be. And after his year at La Rosse and another year at a different school in the United States, when he got to Choate, he finally took fire because of Fitz and because of another English professor, Carrie Briggs. And he asked Briggs to buy books for him in Manhattan. So Briggs put him in contact with Francis Stelloff of the Gotham Bookmark. And in his senior year, for instance, Lachlan would buy 50 books, and not ones that, that were on the school reading list, but uh, books by Archibald McLeish, uh, books, books by um, a strange Paris individual named Lawrence Fale, an American living there, who was then married to Kay Boyle. He bought books by Kay Boyle. He bought books by E.E. E. Cummings. So, you know, it was quite, a, it was quite an interesting list. Mm-hmm. And you, you didn't you buy people like that, I think, because you wanted to um, reform America, but because you were really interested in what new poets were saying. So you think he, he caught this sort of, it was a kind of a contagious interest in, in poetry that he absorbed from these teachers? or Yes, it was partly a contagious interest, but also there was a bit of ego involved because... Lachlan was a younger son. He had a, he had a brother five years older. Mm-hmm. The brother had gone on to uh, Princeton and become a paragon. He was a, a captain oh, yes. of the foot, football a team. soccer team, mm-hmm. and you know, and and got very good grades. Yeah. And so Lachlan set himself out to get straight A's. He did. Um, he studied writing with Briggs and with Fitz, and in his senior year. He submitted a story based on uh, an experience he'd had at the Swiss school, and he called it Salle d'Etudes, study hall. Mm-hmm. And it won the um, prize for you know best national uh, short story in the Atlantic Monthly as the winner of their national essay contest. Oh, wow. So, so he was very competitive then. Oh yes. And so, what was he vying for? Was he vying for his his mother's approval, or was he just vying? You know, he was he just wanted to prove that he was as good as his brother. I think that's it. He wa- he definitely wanted to upstage his brother, and indeed he did because mm. this this made some of the major papers, including back in his hometown in Pittsburgh. Okay. Back in Pittsburgh. Right. And with, with a big headline saying, James Laughlin Four wins top honors at Choate, and then proceeded to list the fact that he'd won nearly everything. I mean, he's, uh, honors in three subjects, uh, every literary prize uh, it, that the school offered. So it was, a, it was seen as a major triumph. Yeah. And it was, it was Fitz who, after that, persuaded him to go on to Harvard. And, and at Harvard, he was, he was given uh, standing in, in several courses, in, including English, for you know, satisfying the requirements toward graduation. So he, he, he started with almost a year of, of credits because of his, of his uh, accomplishments at Choate. And it also caused a, a family upset because 
Every Lachlan going back to his grandfather had gone to Princeton. And his fact. brother went? His brother went to Princeton, yeah, yes. Yeah. In fact, his grandfather had endowed a Lachlan Hall in Princeton, which was a big dormitory, you know, a big posh dormitory. Hmm. So it was, it was by then a family tradition to go to Princeton. What, what's happened with his brother? What's his story? His story was almost an updike story, you know, like sort of like Rabbit Run. After this triumph in school, it, it was sort of a, a downhill slide into broken marriages and alcoholism. It was yeah. very sad, really. Yeah, yeah. Were, they, never, were they close or not? They were not close, no. In fact, uh, Jay said he hated his brother because his brother would tease him and, and call attention to any mistakes that he made. Mm -hmm. You know, and if he used his thumb at table to help food onto his fork, he'd say, Mother, James is shoving with his finger again. Things like that do not endear you to your brother by any means. But you um, tend to grow out of that, but I guess they didn't. You tend to grow out of that, yeah. But I, th I think that um, Lachlan had sort of made his point and went on separately from, from that. Okay. His brother did not have the same dedication to hard work. He could work, obviously, and he had, a, he had a good head on his shoulders when he wanted to apply himself. However, an indication of his attitude toward work and toward the family business was that two weeks after his father's death, he resigned his position and spent the rest of his life as, as kind of a playboy sportsman. So he sort of adopted some of his dad's characteristics. That's, that's right. So he went to Harvard. James went to Harvard. Jay went to Harvard. What, what do you think about Harvard? Well, he wrote very negative comments to his parents about it. Um, it happened to be a year, the year that T.S. Eliot was there. He made the acquaintance of Eliot, and he got to know lots of very interesting people, including Lincoln Kirsten, who would then go on to be a co-founder of the American Ballet Theater and, and uh, also a, an important figure in, in literature. And so it looked, from, it looked from our perspective as if he did very well. He was invited, for instance, to Kirstein's Thursday evening dinners, where, as Lachlan said, I sat there and never opened my mouth because I was in such awe of this great man, Lincoln Kirstein was seven years ahead of him at, at Harvard. Was uh, Eliot lecturing? Eliot, Eliot taught a course, and he was required to give four lectures, but he volunteered to teach a, a, a regular course in, in English literature, and he included, for instance, a whole, a whole session devoted to Ezra Pound. And I don't know if Lachlan went to that, but it's hard to imagine that he would have uh, would not have gone because he already knew about Pound from Fitz. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was Fitz who encouraged him to write to Ezra Pound. At the end of his freshman year, when Lachlan went to Europe, um, he wrote to Pound and said, identified himself and said, I am one of the bright-haired boys of Dudley Fitz, thought to be clever, and I need your help for in bombarding shits like Canby. Now, Canby was the editor of the Saturday Review of Literature and was viewed in 
Lachlan Circle and Jay Circle as being kind of a hopeless reactionary, mm -hmm. which is totally um, unjustified in Canby's case. But uh, you know, you know how the young are. Yeah, yeah, always rebelling against something. Okay, so what is it about him that attracted these two giants, uh, Elliot and Pound? He's like a twenty-year-old kid. Yeah. He can't have read that much by then. Is it was it his conversational skills? Was it his his way way of thinking? Was it yeah. what was it that uh, that they liked about him? He had a presence. Well, he's um, huge, right? Too. He's six foot six. Well, yeah, so, yeah. Literally, so literally, yeah. He also had a way of of speaking his mind that he could get away with it. He was he was brash, but at the same time he was eager to learn. And after this first meeting, so he's humble. Was he humble? He masked humility under a rather brash exterior, and. It was such that that he he seemed to be accepted everywhere he went. You know, mm -hmm. later on when he wanted to go skiing and he pleaded that he didn't have enough money, um, Herbert von Karajan, the the great conductor, was just beginning his career, and he had a chauffeur-driven car and he would pick Lachlan up and drive him up the slopes. Why did he do that? Yeah. Um, so is he he's charismatic then? He's charismatic. Yeah. He met Bernard Fahy, who was Gertrude Stein's friend. If he had a title, it would be the French expert on modern American writing. And so Fahy, after trying to pick up Lachlan at one point, said, uh, would you like to meet Gertrude Stein? I'll write an introduction. And so Fahy drove him to Stein's house, her country house in Billigny, and Stein invited him to stay, and he spent the next eight days writing press releases for her because her famous American tour was about to begin. Now, what was it about Jay that, that affected people that way? Mm -hmm. And and Stein was, was kind of a prickly customer. She said right away, she said, you didn't expect me to let you stay here if you didn't work, do you? No. And so she said, well, write press releases. And so every day he would write something which tried to turn one of her lectures into understandable English. Mm. And she'd say, no, you haven't got it. Do it again. Mm. And so he would. But then after five days of this, he heard her tell Bernard Fay, I say the kid ain't doing so bad, is he? You know? And so he was so smart that he was able to not only be interesting to these people, but to produce when he had to. It seems to me that what has to come out pretty soon is how why New Directions was founded and why Jay didn't go on to become the poet that he thought he wanted to be. See, the whole point of going to visit Pound was to get him to get, to give him tutorials in poetry. But he was the driver for... Uh... Stein for what for for the summer? Was it, no, it was just a, for that eight days. Oh, so it was yeah. so it was a short. It, it was a short, but they 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 visited again after that. Okay, and then someone recommended that he connect with <clears throat> Pound and and what was it? Urs University, or they called it something? The University. Esu University. Right. But, but as a kind of joke. But did he uh, welcome young poets? 
Well, he did. If he, he did, he did if he liked them, you know, yeah. so that people, including James Jesus Angleton, who would then become director of counterintelligence at the CIA, was one of Pound's protégés for a while. And, and Louis Zukovsky was another. Right. But there weren't many. I mean, when Lachlan was studying with him, there was really only, it was only Jay, so it's kind of a, it was a one-on-one mm-hmm. tutorial. tutorial. Yeah. The University was completely off the cuff. There was no tuition. There was no particular acceptance or no exams. It's just that Pound would throw a book at his pupil and say, well, read this and read that, and then we'll talk about it. Ezra would lecture about whatever it was that he was supposed to read, whether it was uh, Catullus or, or Epicurus or whoever. Yeah. What about the obvious possible reason that, that he was so uh, appealing to these people? And that's he, his family was incredibly rich. Yeah. Did that play a role? I don't think it played much of a role. Um, because so, There are too many wealthy people around. I mean, like, like Choate, where, where the future Shah of Persia was a schoolmate, mm. and, and Metternich had a grandson there, you know, all this sort of thing. These were not people who were impressed by wealth because they had so much but, themselves. But Pound was, uh, Pound Pound was, Pound was impoverished, and yeah. Fitz warned Lachlan about that. He said, well, Lachlan had said at some point, well, I, I think I can count on Ez to help me. And Fitz came back and said, well, maybe he's counting on you to help him. However, at a certain point after Jay had gone back to the United States, he acted as an unpaid agent for placing Pound's work with publishers. Pound refused to accept this without paying him. Yeah. And when, when at one point, when Lachlan had gotten uh, a fee for an article of Pound's to appear in a journal, Ezra tore it in half, wrote on, wrote on the back, returned, and handed it back to him. In other words, he was not going to profit from this. And another time he said, the old should not sponge on the young. I don't want to take your candy and chewing gum money. Right. <laughs> now, was, was Pound being sincere? I rather think he was. He was mm-hmm. fiercely independent. He was offered $300 by Lincoln Kirstein for an article, and he didn't accept it. So, you know, it was just a matter of he would place things where he wanted them. If he didn't want them in Kirstein's hound and horn, he wouldn't accept his money. And then there's the famous story about Pound uh, telling Lachlan that his poetry wasn't that good. Oh, right. Go back to the States, finish up at Harvard, and then do something useful, which is published literature. You question that, do you? I question it very strongly, partly because Pound kept encouraging Lachlan's poetry. Throughout his life. Yes, and at this this early period, for instance, Lachlan had written a book called The Hairs of My Grandfather's Head, and Pound wrote to him saying, Harrison Farver's head is okay, let it be printed. And another time he wrote to him saying, he spoke in this kind of pseudo-cracker barrel English, yeah. Is that your technique is in verse improving. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I, I just don't, I think that where that story came from is, one, Lachlan doubted his own ability as a poet. He, he had, had a very good ear for recognizing other poets. Mm-hmm. They were very, very good. And I don't, I think he worried about himself. 
He wrote a story before he started studying at the Esuversity in which he describes a man of some but mediocre talent who's an artist, not a, not a poet, but, but an artist in paints, who goes back to his teacher and says, tell me, is there any hope for me? And the teacher shakes his head and says, I don't think so. He says, well, what can I do? And the teacher responds, there is always work. Now that is the advice that Pound would, two years later, give to Lachlan. Mm. Go back to America, be a man, see if you can do something for that country. This is where Lachlan's idea of trying to improve the um, cultural and intellectual quality of America and, indeed, of trying to reform its economics and its politics. Mm -hmm. At this time, Lachlan was doing things like going to Vassar and giving lectures on Poundian economics, for instance. What are Poundian economics, just quickly? <laughs> um, <laughs> Is it more of a it, kind of a socialist message? Gazellist script was one of them. He said that the problem with poverty is that the banks are what tie up the money and they charge interest and that rusteth the chisel and you, you know that from the cantos it de mm. deprives the working man of the rewards of his labor if you take money away banks can't charge interest and the uh, workman can be directly paid for what he does and to do that, he can be paid with scrip. And there was actually a place uh, in, in Germany where gazellus scrip worked and where you could take this printed piece of paper that said this is worth so many kroner or whatever it was and exchange it for food. It was a place called Virgil, W-O-R-G-L. And um, um, Lachlan actually went to visit it and there was also a place in Canada where they tried that, in Western Canada. And Lachlan visited that too. So he, he became kind of a true believer in this anti-banking thing, which is kind of funny, being the grandson of a banker, mm -hmm. you know, or yeah. the great-grandson. Uh, okay, so, he, so he, he, he came back to, he finished off at Harvard. Finally. Yeah. Oh, what's seven interesting? Seven years. Sorry? It took him seven years. Oh, did it? Yeah. But at least he finished it off. He kept I guess. getting, but cum laude. But yeah. he kept getting, take, asking for leaves of absence. To, he also broke his back skiing in between. He did all kinds of things. I'm uh, reminded of the fact that the uh, there's a, uh, a lovely little publishing firm uh, called Stone and Kimball in the 1890s. Hmm. Uh, they it was part of, you know they were influenced by the uh, arts and craft movement. And both the Stone and Kimball, I think, met at Harvard and set up their publishing mm. firm. And they were, you know, second year or something like that. You're not familiar with the connection there or, or an influence. No. Okay. Uh, okay, so he, uh, he started uh, publishing, a he was involved with the magazine at Harvard? He was involved with the Harvard Advocate and at Yale with the Harkness Hoot which was a kind of competitor to the advocate. He was started out as a healer at the advocate, which meant errand boy, but in fact, pretty soon he was an associate editor, and he was even before that he was doing an editor's job. 
and he would say, they can't put out a good magazine without me, and they know it. This is a funny thing about Lachlan. I mean, he, he, in some ways, he was doubtful of his own talent, but mm. he knew he was smart. Yeah, it, it, it's, well, all interesting people have big contradictions going on yeah. in their lives, but, uh, but this seems to be the one. Why was he insecure? Hmm. What, what's the answer to that one? If I have an answer, it is that he being around people he recognized as geniuses. I think Fitz went into that category, Pound did, William Carlos Williams did. And he saw that he himself did not measure up, at least in their fields. Yeah. Now, he might have been a, be a much better investor as a, a banker. In fact, in his IRS forms, he didn't put publisher, he didn't put poet, he put investor. <laughs> and he was good at that. <laughs> and that was, that was another thing. He's good at thing. investing? Yes, yes. Huh. But, you see, this, this is part of it. We, I guess we, 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 I didn't really get through everything I was going to say about Jones and Lachlan Steel Company. Right. J.L. did not inherit much money until 1961 when his very wealthy aunt died. Leela. Aunt Lila. Lila. And then his uh, mother died in, in 1966. And after that, he too was a wealthy man. Before that, yeah. he had only the pittance that his father had signed over to him at age 21, a mere $100,000. Now, in, modern, in our money, that's about $2 million. So oh. that wasn't chump change. No. That, but he was always scrambling for money, it seemed. Exactly. It seemed. Because, and this is, this is one of those curious contradictions. You know, he, he, would, he would tell Delmar Schwartz that he couldn't give him an advance beyond maybe $250, $300. That's the, the poet who was the his poet editor who worked exactly. for Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he was always putting off Henry Miller. Uh, and, and he knocked Nabokov down to $150 as an advance. You know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And his whole point was that the money that he had as a young editor, he was uh, kind of under obligation to pass on to his family. When he had, when he married and had children, this sort of thing. Right, you don't it touch the capital. Me, yeah, you don't touch capital. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and even when he had a lot of capital after these two major inheritances, he still kind of kept to that. And in turn, if you were an employee for New Directions, it could be very frustrating because he didn't pay very well. Yeah. And he hired women because he could pay them half as much as he paid men. But he stuck with them. He was loyal to the, loyal. his authors. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And finally, what brought him around, he had a, a, a woman, Elsa Lorch, who was his secretary. She said she had three children and was uh, divorced. And she said, Mr. Laughlin, I'm going to have to, I, I'm looking for another job and I've had two offers. And he was shocked. And, and, he, and so she said, well, you know, I have these obligations. So, the light a, went on, and did, he raised salaries, and he started yeah. a, a pension fund. Oh, so, okay. uh, although New Directions employees are, are still, by New York standards, not highly paid, it's uh, a living wage. But so he was, really he was known as a skinflint. He was known as a skinflint.
And it was partly this, it was partly a fiction. In other words, he wasn't going to go into the poorhouse, except that he did lose in those, the first 25 years he lost money every year. And even with Lachlan money, that could count. And so every year he'd have to borrow, usually between six and 8,000, either from Aunt Lila or from his mother or from both of them. And it was, quote, a loan, yeah. which he usually didn't pay back. In fact, I'm not sure he ever did. It so was, in a way, he was dependent. He was dependent. Which for is for what, a long time. Which also, of course, affected his publishing. He, he promised Time Magazine in 1939, they did a profile of him in Time Magazine, a big deal. Mm. And, and uh, he said, yes, I'm going to publish Tropical Cancer. Well, Aunt Lila got a hold of the article and talked it over with her husband, with Uncle Dickie, and they said, if you publish that terrible Henry Miller, we can't support your publishing. We can't. We've got to remember, too, he was so young. He was still, what was he, 25? 20? Yeah. yeah so, I mean, that's yeah, true. pretty young. Yeah. But maybe that's one of the reasons he was insecure. He wasn't making a success of himself. He had to keep relying on his... Well, except, except I don't think he set himself up to make a monetary success. He, yeah, he wanted, okay. because he kept saying, you know, you have to keep, and this was a Poundian adage too, if something is really advanced guard, which he always preferred to avant-garde, he yeah. wanted to be sound American. Yeah. If you want to be really advanced guard, you're going to find authors that nobody else realizes are great. You have to keep them in print for 15 years, at least, until the public catches, catches up. up. Yeah. And yeah. the public finally did catch on, and people like Pound, Williams, uh, a whole lot of others, became university, uh, came on university reading lists. Yeah, yeah. And so finally, the pub, the uh, company, still has bad years occasionally, but it also has good years when they do make a profit. Yeah. Did, why is he going after? Uh, I mean, this is this is glory too. It's if you're able to find the yeah. great writers. Yeah, sure. That's, you, you know, you are immortalized. Is that Was that part of his goal, do you think? Or is it that ego-driven? Hmm. One of his old friends from Norfolk told us, Jay thought well of himself, but he disguised it. He disguised it with, with this sort of G-shucks attitude. You know, I've been fortunate, I've been lucky, uh, this and that. Mm. But... I, I think there was I think there was pride in his accomplishment, but he also felt a a real responsibility toward his writers. And he had such a magnificent eye or yeah. taste or yeah. something, because yeah. you know he did discover or at least give early breaks to so many yeah. great uh, authors. In, indeed, when you when you look at you look at statistics, for instance, in in. Uh, one year in the 1950s, he had just published 26 volumes, which was a lot for one year for a very small publishing house. But he had 294 books still in print. In other words, he was keeping books in print. Now, one of the backlist, good, back, the back good backlist. backlist. Yeah. One of the uh, New Directions watchwords is uh, the hundred copies. If you can sell a hundred copies in a year, you keep it in print. But there probably still are many books that sell less than that, that for various reasons 
they keep in print. And Jay was very reluctant to drop people, uh, if they fell, even if they fell below this threshold. Well, that was the thing. Like the, the you know, the the other, the big publishers that he that he kind of uh, sneered at yeah. as being commodity pushers. Right. Uh, if if one of their poets or writers didn't sell, I, they were out. Absolutely. Whereas uh, he had the long game, right? Which is, I suppose, why all the authors. It seemed like he has such a great reputation. They really wanted to be published by New Directions, even early on. Right. Well, th this was part of his excuse, his reason for, <laughs> whichever side you're looking at, reason or excuse, <laughs> for uh, giving low advances, because yeah. he would say that if I don't give you this up front, a, a big advance, it will be, mean there'll be less time, in less time you will be getting royalties and, and I will then keep you in print as long as there's any reasonable hope of the book selling. Yeah. And so that worked for a lot of people. Yeah, but, you don't need immediate, if you didn't right. need immediate gratification, problem is quite a few of these authors were desperate for money, right? Sure. One of them being William Carlos Williams, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and in, in 1950, he had turned 65, which meant he could no longer practice obstetrics. Pediatric medicine was his field. Mm -hmm. And this would have taken a good part of his income. So he told Lachlan, he told, said, Jay, I, I really want to retire and devote myself full-time to writing. And Jay said, I'll give you $200, $250 a month stipend. Now that was a reasonable amount of money in Rutherford, New Jersey, at that time for somebody who owned his house and didn't have huge expenses. But at the same time, a man who'd worked for Lachlan had gone to Random House, and he got Random House to offer William Carlos Williams $5,000 as an advance. Now, in the next three years, that was all he'd gotten from Random House. If he'd taken the 250 from Lachlan, he would have had $9,000. The good doctor, doctor poet, just hadn't added it up right. Mm -hmm. And Lachlan wasn't offering him a bad deal. He was offering him a secure income to Williams, who really felt desperately poor. It sounded as if he was being just fubbed off by the rich man. Now, 10 years later, they were back together again. Yeah. Well, wasn't Williams ticked off early on because he, he they put out a book, uh, New Directions put out an early book with him, and then James was off skiing or something. The White Mule. The White Mule, yeah. and uh, they couldn't get the copies That's into the stores, right. even though there was a big demand That's for it. Right. So that would tick him off. Of course. Understandably. Yeah. But yeah. you see, if, if you're 23 years old and you want to go skiing in New Zealand, yeah, right. <laughs> and besides, he left his father in charge. Yeah. And his oh, yes, and right. his father didn't have the extra six hundred copies printed that were just sitting there about. They were just sitting there waiting for the bookbinder. Mm -hmm. So Jay had tried to cover his tracks, mm -hmm. and his father let him down. So yeah. So just to put it on the record, he set the company up in nineteen thirty six. Yes. Now, uh, in your biography, let me just get the actual. It's literature. Is my, beat. is my beat. Well, throughout this period, or throughout much of his life, the question of him being a womanizer comes up. Mm. It, so, is, is this pathological? Is this normal? Like, where does it 
where does it fit on the, the the normal scale? Is he just sowing his wild oats like most of us want to do, like to do? Are you, or try, is, are you trying to get me into trouble? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I don't want you to say he was a sex addict or anything like that. But I mean, it. You do make the point that he he yeah. gets around yeah. quite a bit. Um, but is this is it normal or not, or is it is it abnormal? I wouldn't say it's abnormal for a bipolar personality. Mm. His father was very much that way, and I, I'm not blaming everything on heredity, but it was part of this dichotomy that you see in so many things. You know, the, the man who had this super mind and who's always risking his neck skiing, a beautiful physical occupation. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the man who uh, loves poetry and beautiful books and so on, but also is a very canny investor. You know, everything you see about Lachlan, you can go the other way and there it is again. Mm. Now, mm. With, with women, his, his first marriage was by the testimony of both his wife Margaret and himself. It was a mistake. And he always resented the fact that, that um, he was married to her and she produced two children in short order. And she expected to be the wife of a Lachlan, of Jones and Lachlan Steele, with an, a beautiful house and lots of fine things and trips to Europe and, and a lot of entertaining and all that sort of thing. This is a man who read 16 hours a day often, who wrote 17 letters on the average of that period. When is he going to have time to do all these things? He expected a wife to share his interests. Was it reasonable for Margaret? No, it certainly wasn't. So what did he do? He found a book designer and incidentally, I believe this is the only real office affair that he had for 45 years. And she eventually became the third Mrs. Lachlan. So he was having an affair with a woman he for was having an affair 45 with that years? one woman. Now this, this doesn't mean that he was totally faithful to Gertrude either. Gertrude, Gertrude being Houston, his mistress. The, the designer, yeah. who was his, really his mistress. Right. And who was a you know worked as a, as a contract book designer. It was a very good one, by the way. Hmm. Never um, heard of her. And I, a, I thought you were going to say Alvin Lustig, but <laughs> <laughs> well, she she had started out working with Alvin Lustig. Yeah, oh, okay. she went way back. And there were and there were others at at the time. One of these was Maria Britneva, who then, as Lady Saint Just, became Tennessee Williams literary executor and good friend. And Jay was, at one point, after his divorce from Margaret, was going to marry Maria. And her, their wedding was announced, and, and uh, Visconti, the Italian film director, gave a big party for them. Hmm. And Jay got cold feet and vanished in India. Yeah, he didn't treat the women terribly well, Not did always. he? No. But the other thing is that it's been very difficult to find a woman who will say anything negative about mm -hmm. him. The fact is, they, they did think that he actually really cared, right, about yeah. them. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think he did at the time. And, and one of his periods of, of almost frenetic activity occurred late in his marriage to his second wife. 
it arose out of, among other things, his desire to have a history of new directions written. And there had been one attempt by the poet Hayden Carruth, which Jay didn't like because it, it, he said, there's too much of me in it. He said, I don't want to appear in the book. I want to be a shadowy figure. Not possible. So anyway, by in, in the 1980s, he was out at a conference in Port Townsend, Washington, with Anne, by the way, and he met a woman named Carol Jane Banks. And I've spoken to her on the phone, and she said they never had a physical affair, although a lot of people don't believe that. I do. I think, I think Jane was honest with me. But within about a year, he'd also met Vanessa in London, <laughs> and he had met Deborah Pease in uh, Massachusetts, and you know there were others. Maybe he was having liaisons with all of these. Yeah. Yeah. And and what had happened? Well, I think it was partly the the, the last gasp of an old lover who was finally realizing that that uh, the end is near. Right. And Viagra hadn't been invented yet, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And so, and I, I'm not saying this to excuse him, but for the nearest I think I can come to his explanation, plus the fact that his relationship with Anne, with his wife of many years by that time, Anne Resor Lopin, she was the daughter of the founder of the uh, J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, okay. that couple. But we haven't explained really why he's doing this. Like, it, is it, it one of the thing? One of the suggestions might be that yeah. he's looking for a, a, a kind of a muse or a soulmate or a or the mother of his like he's looking for everything in one woman. He can't find it, but he's desperate to find it. So he figures going through a whole bunch of like it's a numbers game. Do I you think, think that's, that's part, it. I think that's part of it. But I think I think the big thing is that he wanted two things out of a woman. Two basic things. Mm -hmm. One. Is, is beauty, excitement, uh, 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 devotion, uh, these, the, the Lady Maria sort of thing, the, the Britneyeva, who was, had been a dancer, who was great fun to be with, but as he also said, after three days of Maria, he had had yeah, it, yeah. basically. He was, he was ready for collapse. And in the meantime, all his life he'd been under the thumb of a strong woman. His mother, his aunt, and finally Anne, whom he called Queen Victoria sometimes. Is she who must be obeyed. Or she who must be obeyed, yes, mm -hmm. right. I think this, this rankled. Okay. And the other thing is he was trying to recapture that uh, first flush of youth, of new love, of all that sort of thing. Yeah. Which doesn't work, but, but you can't tell somebody in his position that it ain't going to work. It's difficult to recapture it's that. It's difficult. Yeah. And, and when, when Anne, a few years after this flurry of enamorata, uh, uh, came down with cancer and died after a rather agonizing year of treatments and so on, I think he was distraught. I think he, he, he was just absolutely floored. And I think he finally realized something of what she meant to him. On mm -hmm. the other hand, he found it difficult. When I mentioned he wanted two things, aside from the excitement, he wanted a good manager. 
Mm-hmm. And Ann yeah. was a superly good manager. She oversaw the construction of a house for their beloved cook, for instance. And apparently she took over contractor's duty. She just did everything. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. could do that sort of thing. You couldn't have Gertrude, you know, Gertrude Houston do that. Or Lady yeah. Maria Brigneva. Not at all, yeah. Say just. I'm sorry, give her. But I think that, that, it, that in, in this, he really is uh, trying to find something in one woman that he wasn't going to find. These yeah, two you can't boys. find it all in exactly. one woman. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, so there's some suggestion that he was sort of dissatisfied throughout much of his life because of that. I think so. Yeah. But again, you see, he was not satisfied with himself, with his poetry. I think his whole life, and I think this is, this is what you see in, in this huge volume of, of his almost 1,100 pages of poetry. Collected poems, yeah. What he was trying to do was find out what he, what himself, what he himself was like. Mm-hmm. It was a story of self-discovery. And I think that this is what I feel that works best in the biography I wrote. Not necessarily because I did anything particularly brilliant in it, but because I think that he realized finally that what he had to do, and by the end of the book, some people have said it ends depressing. Well, it ends with a man's death. On the other hand, he worked till almost the last hour. When he was in the hospital, in his last day or two, he could no longer write, but he dictated passages on his old friend Wheelwright to a male nurse. This is for his poetic autobiography. He used to call it the ought to bug offering. Uh, and he dictated this passage on Wheelwright, who had been a friend of his at Harvard. And it, he knew, he must have known, that he had days left, but he couldn't give up. And he never did. And I, I think I think this is this is the best answer I can give to uh, his womanizing, to some of his decisions, to his parsimony. To uh, he had a vision. He worked through it, and I think at the end he had achieved a a kind of triumph, a triumph of the human spirit. That's not depressing. It's not depressing. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the books themselves, uh, you know, the things that he published. Uh, he was big into series of books. Yes, sir. And I thought that was interesting when I read that because I, I've just spoken to a French publisher, a children's book publisher, and he, it's the same, well, his, it's a three-generation business. He, he sold it in 2007, but he took over in 63, and the company was in quite a bit of trouble. And he turned it around. And one of the things, there was four or five things that he, he did. But one of them was to, to institute a line of books, a, some series of books that I suppose gave some sort of consistency or, or something to the, uh, each year that readers could look forward to and he could rely on for sales and that sort of does that come up with uh, he must have got his idea to do series somewhere or is it just common practice well because maybe you could just tell me which some of these more important series were well i think i think what one is is the 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 tennessee williams set which Mm -hmm. is 
really a, a story of modern American drama, which I think is by our greatest dramatist. Uh, yeah. But what I mean is the early yeah. stuff where he put the he put you know the young poets okay. for example, I think was it five young poets? Yeah, he had three of those volumes, five young American poets, right? And then he did a he yeah. did he did anthologies. He did quite right. a few anthologies. Well, he did fifty five of these uh, quite new, a few. new directions in prose and poetry. Yeah, why was he so big on that? Okay, I, I have a, I have his answer for it, and that is that he he believed. That it's sort of like throwing something at the wall and see if it sticks. So when he got enough poetry that he thought was reasonably good, he put together an anthology. And sometimes he had three in a year. I mean, it started out being an annual, and then he, especially during the Second World War, he missed a few years and so on. But mainly he tried for one a year. And the idea was to give people a chance to have their poetry up there, and if it seemed to work. And he kept coming back to regulars, or some people, every time they wrote something that he liked, he'd, he'd put it in. But it, partly it was to have a sounding, a, a display case for people to be able to express themselves. And they could do that as part of an anthology when he couldn't afford to give them a whole book. Oh, yeah. Now, the poems of the month, started out as Poet of the Month, and then the Book of the Month Club threatened lawsuit. That's right. So they, he called it Poet of the Month slant year. Mm. Those had two purposes. One is to showcase a poet. For instance, the first book that he published of Thomas Burton's was 30 poems. The other thing to do was to keep fine printing alive. So yeah. he went to Cummington Press, he went to Steinauer, he went to all the various... And you look at them, they're really jewels. Which and ones are these specifically? It's hard It's hard for me to pick individual ones, but I've, I've looked at so much of the fine print and, and the, the typefaces and the fact that, that so many different ones are represented. In other words, it's almost a catalog. If oh. you look at, it, at a three years run of the Poets of the Month year, uh, you've got a, a beautiful cross-section hmm. of fine work. From a range of different... From a range of different... Uh, printers. And printers. And he designed a lot of these covers, too, didn't he? I'm of not those? sure. Most of his design work was done in the, during the 30s when he was doing almost everything himself, from designing the books to peddling them from yeah. across the country and yeah. from the trunk of his Buick. Other sets he went into because he thought the poet was so important and these, these would be Pound's Cantos. He kept publishing mm -hmm. the cantos with, with the revisions, and that, and that was a, a real labor of love because, especially toward the end, Pound was just having trouble writing and finishing every, anything. And the other poet, he felt particularly the obligation to get all, all of his work into print was William Carlos Williams. There are two other series, the New Classics series, which was dedicated to getting people back into print who had gone out of print. And so That's right. Um, people like Henry James, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, was one. Scott Fitzgerald. The, the Crack-Up was one that was published over the strenuous objections of Delmar Schwartz. They had a lot of disagreements. A they? lot of disagreements. Why did he, it's funny, you say the literature is my beat, because he, he avoided politics. Why did he avoid politics? 
in spite of Ezra Pound. He avoided politics because he, he's, he really wasn't a marcher. He didn't get out there with a flag or a sign or whatever. Mm-hmm. He contributed to political campaigns if he liked the person. So he contributed to both Democrats and Republicans, modest sums. I mean, he sent a $50 check or something like that. I don't think that he believed in revolution. This is the place where he really did disagree with Ezra Pound, for instance. He didn't believe in political change through marching, through protests, through that sort of thing. But he was very happy to contribute to the campaign of H.J. Heinz's son, the one who was killed in a plane crash, because he, you know, he thought he was a good man because yeah. of his father, you know, so yeah. he would contribute in that way. What happened uh, during the 50s and 60s? Were there, what, were the, what were the big happenings within the company? Uh... Right. Well, all through the 1950s was a split with William Carlos Williams. And partly, I think, in reaction to that split was when Jay took a job with the Ford Foundation and worked um, until, really until 1957, for the Ford Foundation as the head of, of IPI, of the publications that produced uh, a series of perspectives, magazine perspectives, which was designed to counter the advance of communist propaganda mm-hmm. and of the European perception of the United States as being an anti-intellectual country where its highest claims to fame were Mickey Mouse and Coca-Cola. Obviously an exaggeration, but that was how Jay saw it. And he sold John Maynard Hutchins, the former chancellor of the University of Chicago, on that. And for a while, the Ford Foundation. And so Jay invented a magazine called Perspectives USA and published it in French, Italian, German, and English. And this was legitimate uh, literary publication, or was there underlying political message that communism was bad? That was very much underlying because he he published people who were distinctly leftist. Uh, his his director of translations was a, a real rogue named Edouard Roditi, who was finally turfed out by Lachlan because he was using company funds. One of those, but. The whole impetus behind Perspectives USA was to present culture, and he refused to have anything that looked like advertising. He said, quote, not even for Fords. He didn't uh, have to worry about that because it was funded by Ford. It was funded by Ford. But in other words, he said it, it would lose all credit if it was simply a matter of propaganda. Yeah. So so he got people like Thornton Wilder, for instance, to write for it. He got you know, lots of really good... Uh, American writers. It was more than literary then, was it? It was more than literature, literary. It was, it was broadly cultural. Mm-hmm. What would you compare it to, the magazine? That... I think it was quite unique for the time. Because Stephen Spender was involved in it. Spender was involved in that. He, he, had, he was involved in another magazine that the CIA were. Is the CIA involved in this, yeah. this funding as well? The CIA was, was not involved in Perspectives USA. The one that... Um, was Encounter? Encounter was the one that Spender... And Spender really felt that he had been burned over that. Yeah, yeah, because he, he, he felt he was misled. denying that it was the CIA. Uh, actually, the closest Jay came to the CIA, one of the people on the board of Perspectives USA was Bill Casey, 
Jay said, quote, you know, I knew the horrible Bill Casey all too well. Casey at that time was supposedly just running some think tank industrial thing in Washington. And he wouldn't go back to the CIA until 1980 or 81, something like that. He'd been OSS during the Second World War. So was he still CIA? <laughs> I suspect. I, I suspect simply because I doubt that he had cut all contact. How much but he was there supposedly to keep an eye on wicked me, as, as Jay put it. Well, to make sure their money was doing yeah, what they wanted yeah. it to do, I guess, right? Anything Ir else that... Uh, Irving Crystal up? called it that wretched, that wretched Ford journal. <laughs> How long did that go for? It, it lasted until uh, 1957. From when? From 1950. I think the first one, first one actually came out fifty one, something like that. The pilot issue was fifty. And what that was a quarterly or? A... Let's see, there were sixteen, so okay, it was so not quite almost quarterly. Yeah, and that was that was coupled with a with another project. I think it was also through the Atlantic Monthly, where the Atlantic Monthly published seventy pages, which Jay was allowed to use for a country issue. Mm -hmm. So he did one in Burma, you know. Uh, one on Italy and, you know, that sort of thing. So he served as the editor then? Yeah. It's fun to play with someone else's money. Yeah, and, and, that, and that was more successful in terms of circulation than the perspectives. Okay. Perspectives ran t typically um, 7,000 copies per okay. issue, 10,000 in that order. The fact that New Directions is focused on poetry, which is... It's so difficult to make any money yeah. of poetry is laudable, but he also uh, he's also renowned for and New Directions is renowned for their translation program. I mean, he's focused on it, great international, bringing yeah. that to the attention of the English speaking world. Well, that partly grew out of, of Jay's own language preoccupations, and and that's one reason why in the early days of, of New Directions, you saw a, a fair number of, of Italian writers, French, and German, because these were the three European languages that Jay was quite comfortable in. He, his Spanish wasn't very good at all, mm. and that's one reason why he missed the Spanish, the Latin American boom novelists. Well, he got only the poets like Nicanor Parra and, and, uh, Neruda. and yeah. Pablo Neruda. Right? Yeah. But all the, all the, the Carlos Fuentes and the Vargas Llosas and so on, well, for one thing, they didn't write much poetry. They were long novels. And, and Jay always felt that he didn't do too good a job in novels, and they cost too much to print, and he needed a lot of advertising and so on. And he was also allergic to spending a lot of money in advertising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was he good at finding really good translators? I think, it's, I think he's done pretty well. I know I've met some of his, Hinton is, is very good, and also people like the the man Robert McGregor who took over New Directions, actually starting in 1950, Jay had hired him, and then throughout the years of, of the Ford Foundation, he really ran New Directions. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jay kept tabs of what was going on, but he had great confidence in McGregor. And McGregor had friends like Osamu Dasai and Mishimo in Japan. And so he would tap into them to get 
works translated. Now, Siddhartha, which was New Direction's great uh, all-time bestseller really, yeah, yeah. in, in prose and in, in yeah. fiction, is one where New Direction's contracted somebody to translate it. And I, I can't address the quality of the translation. But it's sold. <laughs> it's, it's certainly sold. And what about the 60s? The, the 60s, Jay was getting back into New Directions. I would say that it was not a, a particularly stellar decade. That was the period when he became aware, really, or became interested in, in the Beats in San Francisco. Yeah, he sneered at the Beats to start with, certainly, right? Right, because he had the idea that, 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 that they just sat around and blew joints and, yeah. and uh, drank cheap wine out of well, jugs. Well, he was right in that regard. <laughs> to, to an extent. The person who sort of anchored him there was, was Lawrence Ferlinghetti. When Ferlinghetti, let's see, his book with, with the the Henry Miller title. Ferlinghetti, of course, of City Lights became uh, fame. A, yeah, Coney Island of the Mind, which is the title he'd gotten from Henry Miller, uh, ultimately sold a million copies. And for poetry in America, this is astounding. Well, and it's like Khalil Gibran. Sort of like... Level sales. Except, except well, I, I would say of much higher quality. And Ferlinghetti was not to my mind, a beat. I mean, he just does not sound like that. Neither was Gary Snyder. Well, yeah, I mean, Ferlinghetti had his own bookstore and he had his own publishing firm. That's right. For time to, for time, to time, published Jay's poetry. Mm. Yeah, he did a couple of volumes of Jay's poetry. That whole group that um, coalesced around the Sixth Gallery reading in San Francisco that included Whalen, Ferlinghetti, Gary Snyder, and num- a number of other poets. Jay ended up publishing quite quite a few of, of them. Michael McClure was somebody else who was one of the six gallery readers. Uh, Jack Kerouac was there, and, but his contribution was mainly uh, passing around gallon jugs of, of red wine and collecting money for, for buying more. And he, he put that episode into one of his novels, On the Road, I think it was. And Kenneth Rexroth was the MC at it. And Rexroth, by the way, was, was one of uh, one of Lachlan's closest friends. Yeah. And yeah. indeed, one of the figures he published most. He did something like 28 books of, of Rexroth. So Rexroth was an influence on his own poetry, on Jay's poetry. So he, he was very important for that. Gregory Corso is another. Corso fit the preconception of the beats rather better than most. I mean, he was really kind of an unwashed bum. But he also was a painter. And some, some Japanese literary painting enthusiasts bought his paintings. And he would come into the New Directions office with a check for $5,000, for instance, from his, his Japanese patron. And no one would cash it because they looked at this unwashed bum. So he'd he'd have to get Peggy Fox at New Directions to go down to the bank with him and say, "Yes, this this man's an important poet." <laughs> so yes, Jay finally caught on to the beats. The reason he didn't publish Allen Ginsberg, and this I think ties into his own poetic ethics or his own publisher's ethics rather. He considered 
Allen Ginsberg to be Shirley Getty's property. And okay. because uh, Ginsberg had been at this Sixth Gallery meeting and had read Howell at it, I guess it was the first major public reading of it, mm. and it brought down the house. So Shirley Getty said immediately, City Lights will publish it, and of course was then arrested, and there was a trial, and Lachlan was one of the people who gave testimony on behalf of Ferlinghetti and uh, Ginsburg. Somebody said to him, well, you didn't like Alan before. What happened? He said, oh, Alan suddenly got good. They were friendly. He and, and Ginsburg were very friendly, but he never tried to put out a book by him simply because I think he considered him to be the property of... Yeah, a gentleman's agreement. Gentleman's agreement. I think one person we haven't talked about, we've had a, we have had a few sinners, and maybe it's a good idea to go from the Beats to Thomas Merton, um, <laughs> okay. the saint. He came into Jay's ken through Mark Van Doren, who during his long career at Columbia had Merton as one of his favorite students. And in fact, Merton had sent in a bunch of his poems for one of the new directions of prose and poetry. Apparently Jay didn't like it. He didn't even answer it the letter, so far as, as anybody knows. But a year or two later, Van Doren took it on himself to send some more of Merton's poetry to Jay, and this is what produced that 30 poems volume that I mentioned before. And it was a rather curious finding for, for Jay because Jay, one thing, didn't like, said he didn't like religious poetry. I, I, I think that as a, a Presbyterian, uh, he had simply kind of had it. For, at least he associated all Presbyterians with the Pittsburgh variety. And so anyway, he looked at this volume of this sheaf of 30 poems, and they had something that he really liked. It was the quality of the imagery, the vigor of the language. Even though it was largely religious in theme, he decided to go ahead and publish it. Well, after that, he started becoming interested in his prose as well. And about that time... What time was that? Thomas... What year was that? Let's see. That would have been about 1947, I think something, 48. Merton wrote to Lachlan and said, I've just started an autobiography and you probably wouldn't be interested in it. But And Lachlan wrote back and said, well, let me see it. And so Merton promised that he'd give him a chance at it. Well, pretty soon it turned out to be 620 type pages. And that was, of course, a seven-story mountain. Well, Lachlan was in Europe at the time. So Merton handed this manuscript to Naomi Burton Stone, his agent, saying that that Robert Giroux uh, might be interested in it. Well, Giroux read it and cabled an answer immediately, you know, we'll, we'll take it. Now, later on, Jay would say that he'd been off skiing. He never got the manuscript. You see, Merton, because he didn't hear anything really positive from Jay, saying, yes, by all means, send yeah. it to me. Yeah. He thought, well, it means he's not interested in it. And so he sent it to... Um, oh, dear. You missed out on something huge, right? Something huge. It was the bestseller of the year, 600,000 copies sold and, and so on. And that was the one miss that 
I think, really sort of rankled, although Jay never blamed Merton for it. Uh, Merton wrote to Jay shortly after that and said, I guess we got mixed up on the... And, and so Jay wrote back and said, well, it wasn't really the kind of thing for New Directions. I doubt if we could have put it across and so on and so on. I think that by then he'd already established this feeling for Merton that would last for the rest of, of their lives. And he wasn't going to accuse... Merton of having double-crossed him. Later on, Giroux suggested that it would be better for Merton to have all of his publishing under my direction. It wasn't for our Strauss and Giroux yet, but anyway, to have it all under my direction. Naomi Burton Stone was all for that, but the, the father Abbott and Tom Merton came in on Jay's side and said no. In fact, Merton was funny about it. He said, Jay likes to come down here. It does him good to come down here. He has his own soul to work out. I think we should... <laughs> and so, and so they, they turned down Giroux at this attempt at, at raiding another author. Now, yeah. Jay, to his credit, never, to my knowledge, went to Giroux and said, you sneaky bastard. Mm -hmm. But he must have thought that and was very pleased that Merton had, had stood up for their relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, loyalty was pretty important. I think in this case, it went beyond publisher's loyalty. Mm -hmm. uh, I really think that Jay, among his other side, was a religious seeker. And I think that he hoped to get to heaven holding on to Merton's shoelace, at least. There's what, one final author that we haven't talked much about, and that's Dylan Thomas. Yeah. That was fairly early on, that, and Thomas wasn't that loyal, was he? He kind of played around a bit. Well, he, he would have if he could, but at first he had trouble getting somebody else to, in America at least, he couldn't find an American publisher. So he was forced, he felt, to accept what turned out to be a $60 advance against his books and so on and so on. So, yes, what Thomas wanted to have was enough money in his pocket so he could go out and get drunk. Well, they were really, really poor. They were really poor, yeah. but he also didn't help it. No, he because didn't. Well, and when he came over to the States, yeah. he got yeah. obliterated a, a lot, all the time, pretty well. I know that his wife was, well, they had a pretty tempestuous relationship. Yeah, but Thomas and, and Durrell were very good friends. Durrell, who didn't have a lot of money at the time, would periodically send a pound note in, in a letter to Thomas, and Thomas would come back saying, the lovely pound, it crinkles like lettuce, <laughs> and so on and so on. But the whole issue of loyalty in, in J.L. Going, going back to Merton, and by the way, I think, I think Jay was very loyal to Thomas. When Thomas died, he started a fund to provide something for, for the, the widow. Yeah. And, and to get children, the body yeah. back, he went to uh, Drew Heinz, Mrs. Heinz, for, for money and said, we need such and such to fly, and she sent a check. He did things like that to, mm. to help out. Perhaps the best of all examples, and th th this is something that Peggy can address better than I can. Peggy, but, your wife. Peggy. Yes, Laughlin's former publisher and, and CEO, so she, and editor of tennis, for Tennessee Williams. And she's going to take the baton from you for us to do a, another interview that's, uh, that's a companion to this one. Well, then, then you'll get the real story. <laughs> right. Not just from some academic. Not just from some academic. <laughs>
but from, from from somebody who worked for many years with James Laughlin and yeah. who knew Tennessee Williams as well. Okay. But Tennessee Williams was loyal to J.L. until the very end, which was rather astounding in a sense because Williams, unlike Merton, had a long track record of breaking friendships. Yeah, this was the, one of the very few that, that didn't break, yeah. right? Well, just uh, just in closing, the, the company, New Directions, this was going into the early 70s, it was still independent, and the objective was to create a, a lasting literature. Did Lachlan's intuition and his ability to recognize excellence in writers, did that stay with him throughout his whole life? I think it stayed pretty well with him. He kept going right to the end. I mean, for instance, Guy Davenport was a late acquisition. Mm. And he'd always, for a long time, he'd, he'd admired Davenport's writing and his classical scholarship mm. and his, his tremendous, well, he's a fine artist too. But there was some resistance to him at New Directions. Mm. Uh, but what is it though about Lachlan that that was so this you know we talk about his intuition and his yeah. ability to to spot greatness. What did he have that others didn't have? Maybe his tolerance. I, th I think actually it, beyond that he was an appreciator. And he read so much. He too. read so much. Maybe that was part yeah, of it too. Pe people tend to go in with with certain I ideas. You know. I've, I have a number of friends who are in the Ernest Hemingway, International Ernest Hemingway Society. By God, you better not say the wrong thing about Hemingway or you're going to have a fight in your hands. <laughs> but, and, but Jay, you see, when he read The Sun Also Rises as a young man, for instance, on a train going to Rapallo, he said, good but weak. Now, the world hasn't agreed with that estimation, but I don't think that Hemingway measures up very well with, uh, with a lot of the other people that Laughlin published. And mm. I mean, he's, he's a fine writer. Perhaps, he's a bigger personality than he is a writer. Yeah, he's a very big personality. Yeah. He's a huge personality. And, you know, Gertrude Stein appreciated him. And he, her. But you really want to be able to appreciate a wide range of people. And for some reason, Jay could look at a Merton, the geography of Logrère, for instance, and say, this is his, one of his finest works of poetry. And he can look at, at a William Carlos Williams, Red Wheel Barrow, and say, this is great. They couldn't be more different. And he could look, he could publish Céline and admire him. Céline, I mean, you know, fascist. Right? Mm -hmm. Anti-Semite. Anti-Semite. Or Dahlberg. Jay used to say that, that Edward Dahlberg was, was perhaps the most unpleasant person he'd ever dealt with. On the other hand, I can read Dahlberg and think, wow, Dudley Fitz was somebody else who had this same kind of appreciation. Swearing but he would never that read doesn't Dahlberg. doesn't tell us anything, Pardon? It's just appreciation. It's still difficult. This magical ability to discern greatness. This is back to Gertrude Stein again. You know, what she told Jay, you have to hear the bell ring. So, in other words, he just, his bell was really fine-tuned. It was like, it was a really good bell. It's a good bell. Not very many people had that his kind of bell. There were no cracks in his publishing <laughs> bell. Just finally, obviously, he's hugely important to you and in your life. So what impact has he had on your life? 
on <laughs> you, on the way you live? Well, for one thing, it makes me very aware of how little I've done. <laughs> but on the other hand, so you're in the company of genius just like he was, and you're not feeling worthy. On the other hand, at my age, I'm not folding up my tent. <laughs> I'm in, the, I'm in the middle of another novel now. And so, you know... And you I, are how old? 80. And so would I be doing this without J.L.? I don't know. There's always Peggy Fox, because Peggy Fox didn't work around J.L. for well over 20 years without picking up a lot of it. And there is something about Peggy. You don't deny her easily. In fact, I don't. I try never to deny her at all. <laughs> and I think she's that, sitting here, by the way. I and I think that I think that that JL, for all of his failings, for all of his foibles, is an extremely admirable person. And you know, I I keep thinking that that he did so many things so well and helped so many people and gave the world so much. And I think this this is great. Now, is is he as, as good a poet as Dylan Thomas, as, as good a lyric poet? I, I doubt it. But he's a very good poet. His short stories are so good that I'm very sorry he didn't write more. Could he have given us a life in literature the way he gave us a life in publishing? Could he do both? I don't know how. You need two lives. You need two, three, four, yeah. and, and, and then some. Do you want to finish off with a, a poem of his? Why not? Okay. We talked about his family. This, this is one that he wrote about his children. Yeah, we haven't talked much at all we about his children. We haven't talked much about them. Uh, he was, I mean, he was so busy that you'd think he wouldn't have any time for them, but... Well, I picture this happening at Meadow House in Connecticut, just from the ages of the children. This is their family house? This, this is the family house. Layla and, had bought that one for them and fixed it up? Yes, right. Yeah. Actually, she had moved it down the road. It was a farmhouse. And then it grew and grew and grew until uh, what started out as about a seven-room farmhouse as now well over 20 rooms and, an, uh, you know, one thing and another, office ring, several stories, and so on and so on. Yet, it's, it's very country. Aunt Lila lived across the street at a place named after the Forsyth Saga, Robin Hill. So there are all these country roads you can go out and walk with your children and, and not be run over by, by all sorts of vehicular traffic. And this is called Step on His Head. Let's step on Daddy's head, shout the children, my dear children, as we walk in the country on a sunny summer day. My shadow bobs dark on the road as we walk, and they jump on its head, and my love of them fills me with all full of soft feelings. Now I duck with my head so they'll miss when they jump, and they screech with delight, and I moan, oh, you're hurting me, you're hurting me, stop, and they jump all the harder, and love fills the whole road, but I see it run on through the years, and I know how someday they must jump when it won't be this shadow, but really my head, as I stepped on my own father's head. It will hurt, really hurt, and I wonder if then will I have love enough when it's not just a game? I think that's J. 
Jay when he really has his muse in operation. One of his, he had two boys, did he? He had three boys and one girl. From different wives? These two children were by his first wife, Margaret Kaiser, from Utah. And then he had two children with Anne Resor Lachlan, his second wife, two boys. The, the older boy, Robert, committed suicide at age 27. The other son committed suicide after this book was published, leaving a wife and two children. We haven't talked about this underlying tragedy of the family other than to mention the bipolar curse and so on. Robert, who committed suicide at age 27, was probably bipolar, but he had he'd been troubled since age three, at least. And uh, one can't help but think that the curse that Jay saw following him all his life was worked out in these two unfortunate men who died apparently as a result of the genetic imbalance of the bipolar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if it didn't skip a generation because he, he lived with it and he suffered, yes. but not to the extent that it, that it killed him. Jay had a very strong will. You can't talk about a strong will yeah. beating mental illness. It's not about being weak. It's it's you've got mental illness. You can't you can't will it away. He talked about it in those terms. I I agree with you, but I think that there are varieties of intensity. Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. I think maybe his yeah. son's got a real heavy dose of it. Especially the first one. I mean, Henry, who died in, in his 50s, very nearly, looked to us as if he very nearly beat it. He was very helpful to me when I started writing the biography. He took me all around the roads, around Meadow House, uh, around Norfolk, and uh, up into the mountains and so on. He was a lovely person. We thought, we who knew the family at all, that, that here is somebody who has escaped the curse. But when he, he did die, and by the same means that his brother had died, it wasn't the first attempt either. And so it wasn't as if this was some final uh, one-off event. His firstborn son seems to be doing better, but also has a, has a, a, a different kind of adjustment to life, let's put it that way. Well, mental illness and creativity often go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Any final final words about having written the book, uh, where you're at right now with, uh, with him? It's, it's been, it was published in 2014 that's right. by FSG. Right. I, may I quote Henry Miller? I adore reading my old books. I can't say I absolutely adore them, but I certainly, thanks to you... Nigel, I have reread this book, Literature is My Beat. And in a sense, that phrase, I think, works for my life too. Mm -hmm. Literature is my beat, for better or worse. I drive a tractor, I do other things like that, but uh, I keep coming back to literature. 
I think... Well, you taught literature. Oh, yes. Yeah, we didn't get into that in the bio, so why don't we just finish off your bio <laughs> at the end here? Yeah. We didn't really talk at all about your career as a, as a teacher. Maybe you could just give us a bit of a bracy of that. Well, I've enjoyed it. Where did you teach? State University of New York Maritime College in the Bronx. Before that, at La Universidad de Costa Rica. And before that, at La Universidad Católica de Puerto Rico. So I have had experience teaching in Spanish and teaching in other countries. I mentioned before that I worked as an engineer and had engineering training. And I don't regret any of my several careers. And maybe it's because of that I have such love for James Lachlan. Because I don't think he had any interest in engineering, but I do share a lot of other interests with him. And literature is my beat. I just hope that I can continue it a few more years. Me too. Thanks very much for Thank uh, you very much. sharing your beat with, uh, with me. I've been speaking with Ian S. McNiven, who is the author, among other things, of Literature is My Beat, A Life of James Lachlan, publisher of New Directions. And your novel? My novel? Well, it's a historical novel set in my native Suriname. In part of my childhood, I grew up in a river near the Brazilian border. And uh, my constant companion was a Nduka boy named Inga. And he was a descendant of his people who had escaped from slavery in the 18th century. And it was from him I learned to paddle the rivers and shoot fish with a bow and arrow. And uh, it was probably the great experience of my childhood. When can we expect that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sounding like an editor now. Well, when I have no idea at this point, but mm. uh, you'll, you'll get a copy. Thanks very much. And thanks again for your time.